I just I did hit record. Um, oh. Anyway, well, hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Therapy. I'm your host Adam Roberts. I'm here as always with my delightful husband Craig Johnson. Hello. And today's guest is a friend of both of ours. That's right. He's our neighbor and um, travel companion. We go every year with him to Provincetown. Father of Yoshi. Father of Yoshi, um, Winston's best friend. Winston's our dog. And uh, that person is Kyle Buchanan, who is currently the carpet bagger for the New York Times, which means that he covers all of the award season um, stuff for the newspaper. And he writes very smart celebrity profiles of actors and directors. Yeah. He did one that you really loved recently about Pedro Almodovar. Pedro Almodovar. Yeah. yeah that, was, that was wonderful. And I really liked the one he did of Adam Driver. Um, but we see Kyle every day almost because we walk Winston past his house and Winston and Yoshi play together. They do. Yep. Um, well, so Kyle is in charge of, you know, covering the Oscar stuff and all the award stuff. It makes me think about film. And, um, and one thing I wanted to ask you, Craig Johnson, as a film director, and it's a question I eventually asked Kyle today, too, is what are your favorite food movies? Oh, boy. Well, how do you define a food movie? A movie where food figures prominently in the story. <laughs> um... Oh, God. I don't know. I'm not prepared for this question. Let's see. I've always loved uh, the Ang Lee movie Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, mm-hmm. especially the opening credit sequence yeah. where a incredible Chinese dish is being prepared in these little kind of, you know, glimpses of it, like, you know plucking a f- live fish out of a, a barrel of other fish and then like whoop, ripping it up and then getting mm-hmm. it all ready. Um, that's, it always makes me hungry, that sequence. You know what my favorite food movie is? Big Night. No, that's one of my favorites. Um, my favorite- that's Feast. No, that's a good one. Mine is not officially a food movie, but- Oh, is it the sequence in Defending Your Life? It's just Defending Your Life. Oh, okay. Defending. That's a great movie. That's an underrated movie. Everyone should see Defending Your Life, starring Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep. Yeah. Directed well, by Albert, Albert Brooks. Brooks. And written by right, Albert Brooks. Right, right, but right. it's a great food movie because the premise is that when you die, you go to Judgment City and you um, have to defend your life. So there's a whole trial. And Buck Henry, who just died, plays one of his lawyers, which is funny. Um, but the... Um, premise is you get to eat whatever you want and it's like the best version of that food in the world and you don't get fat and you don't get full or maybe you get full but you don't get fat right yeah i remember just the scene of albert brooks eating an omelet and he's just oh it's the best thing he's ever yeah. tasted like, you just mm. can't believe it oh yeah and the um and his lawyer is played by Rip Torn, and Rip Torn's character uses, it's like they all use like 2% of their brains. Like humans use 3% of our brains, and then the lawyers use like 70% of their brains or 80%. So they they eat food that's like incomprehensible to um, Albert Brooks. It really is an underrated gem, defending your life. I think it was also the first time I ever saw a sushi restaurant in a movie because there's like a whole sushi sequence and uh zero dreams of sushi there's a movie too. yeah it's documentary about sushi if you're but you've never seen babette's feast right? i haven't no that's really good and big night is a, officially like one of my favorite food movies for sure yeah what do you think of julie and julia i mean okay i don't it it wasn't particularly memorable to me other than meryl streep's performance uh-huh which was great 
I mean, I liked it because it was about a food blogger. Well, that tracks. That makes sense. A lot of people didn't like the food blogging stuff as much as they liked the Julia Child stuff. Oh, poor Amy Adams. But I felt like you kind of needed the food blogging section or the Amy Adams section to kind of contextualize the Julia Child section to help explain why she was so important, why her recipes still you know, persevere and right. persevere, why they still or stick around. Mm-hmm. Um, any I'm other- trying to think of individual food scenes that that are like big standouts. I was thinking, of- you know, you know what I was. <laughs> uh, I don't know if anybody listening has been watching the Dark Crystal show on Netflix. It's it's a. Um, uh, does everyone know the Dark Crystal? Well, who knows the Dark <laughs> There, um, there are these feast scenes of these creatures, the Skeksis, just like, just they're these kind of grotesque, um, gluttonous. They kind of look like just these dead birds, but they're dressed to the nines. They're sort of the, you know, the ruling class of this world, this fantasy world, done with puppets. And they have all these feast scenes where they're just gorging on like we- gross, weird tentacles and eyeballs. And- well, they eat each other's fingernails or something. I think I saw like a scene where like someone's fingernail got oh, eaten maybe off. Maybe so. I'm trying Ugh. to remember. But, but, but that's it- one of your favorite food scenes is from the That's Skeksis. a memorable, memorable uh, food scene. Well, in that, in that regard, I mean, I just had a, a Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yes, right, right. But that's yeah, that probably very, doesn't hold up very well. No, it's seen as very xenophobic. It engages it, in exoticism. But it has a scene where they Which somebody the, was, ju- you know, was sort of explaining, though, within the context of, this is a conversation about genre, that within the context of pulp, you know, 1930s kind of, you know, pulp fiction, which is sort of what those were based on, you have to look at it in that context. Although I'm sure if we brought in an Indian friend of ours, they would take issue with that, that sequence. Well, Yeah. And I, in terms of it being memorable, though, as a kid, when I saw that sequence, oh of, yeah, it's eating monkey brains and, and they eyeball cut that snake soup open, and, they, and oh, the little snakes come yeah. out eels. Yeah. They're little eels. That, oh. that's, it's so gross. I'll never forget that for as long as I live, yeah. offensive or not offensive. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. What else? Have you ever shot a food scene in any of your movies? I mean, you. Uh, I've shot dinner scenes. I, sh- I shot a scene where a kid is on drugs and he eats a ton of um, gummy worms. Oh, and, and Alex Strangelove pukes them all up over his friend. Spoiler alert! Oh yeah, and do you want to tell everyone how that was made? The gummy worm vomit by chopping up actual gummy worms. I remember you showed, me, but it wasn't it a whole process of like. Well, we just needed a lot of people to do it. it. Required a lot of of gummy worms and a whole army of people in the kitchen of the house where we were shooting chopping them up into little bits and pieces and mixing it with a little bit of goo mm-hmm. and putting it into what was basically a giant plunger <laughs> like that, like a giant, huge, sort of like a bellows for a fire. Uh-huh. Um, and you just plunged it and shot it through this, like a giant syringe, <laughs> pushed it into and the face. And you sprayed it all over the kids. Sprayed it all over the kids in the back. How many times did they have to get sprayed with? Oh, we did it maybe six or seven times. Were yeah. they good, good sports about it? They were it? very good sports and it was miserable. Them. What about um, shooting scenes in movies where like actors have dietary needs and I mean all that kind of stuff? Oh yeah. Well, I did a movie with Woody Harrelson who is raw, vegan, organic. Uh huh. So whenever he ate food on screen, his character was not. His character actually just kind of was very pedestrian and just ate crap. This is a movie called Wilson. This is a movie called Wilson. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but but whatever he's eating, it was the the raw, vegan, organic version of it. And by the way, he had a raw vegan organic chef 
with him. And I, you know, was a little probably skeptical of like how great the food could be raw, vegan, organic. I mean, come on. But let me tell you, if you, this chef would whip up. <laughs> so if you've got money to hire Woody Harrelson's personal vegan chef. This is just, this is just with, with some thought and some care and the right ingredients, which admittedly probably hard to come by. You can, they, and it would just be like a bowl of like gloppy stuff, but it'd be like cashew cheese. You're not really selling it. Delicious, with the gloppy stuff. It, it didn't look like much. I'm just, yeah. I'm telling you. But, uh, but it was so delicious and so flavorful. And speaking of raw, my go-to lunch recently. You know what it's been? What? Well, we live right next door to the Village Bakery. Don't tell the people. My stalkers are listening to this. Oh. That's fine. Ooh, okay. All right. Well, maybe well, we'll they'll come to... kill you first. Okay. Um, they do a uh, uh, a um, a vegan kale Caesar. You really that's like it? Delicious. Really? Yes, I'm a big fan of cashew cheese. Which cashew is cheese? Cashew cheese. They make a sort of cheese like. I've never thought I would hear you say cashew. the sentence. It's delicious. I'm a big. They sell it at the farmers market that we go to every Sunday. Why don't you buy some f- for me? It's my new favorite. Because well, that would be great for you. Our last podcast intro uh, was about you eating cheese and me yelling at you. So why don't you buy some cashew cheese and then I don't have to yell at you? Well, because um, I have every right to eat cheese. I'm a full grown man. <laughs> oh, or cashew cheese or make my, you might my sound own like choices. The Will Ferrell character where he's like, I drive a Dodge Stratus. Uh, that's that's what, whatever I say. I'm a, I'm a full grown, I drive a Dodge Stratus. That's well, a great sketch, by the way. All of this is a great preamble to my podcast today with Kyle because not only is he into film, but he's also someone who does not like his vegetables, which is something that we get into mm. in today's conversation. Um, but before we get to today's interview with Kyle, I just want to remind you, if you haven't already, please um, subscribe to Lunch Therapy. You can do that just by going into Apple Podcast, searching Lunch Therapy and clicking subscribe. And while you're there, if you can review us, a five-star review would be incredible. And if you don't already you can follow us on social media um amateur gourmet on instagram and i'm also lunch therapy if you want to see what i'm having for lunch and craig is csj214 on instagram all right well without further ado here is my interview with kyle buchanan well kyle Thank you for coming on Lunch Therapy. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So you just got back from Sundance? I did, yeah. Uh, what, two nights ago? Oh, I don't know what time means anymore. So how was it? It was great. Yeah. I always look forward to it. Um, you know, my job requires me to do a lot of talking about year-end Oscar movies. Mm-hmm. And after I've done that for a couple months, it's really nice to be able to go to Park City and see so many new movies New stories, new directors, new actors, yeah, just new things to get excited about. Because a lot of the Oscar subjects this year were kind of people that have been around for a while, right? Like Brad Pitt, yeah, and, Laura Dern, yeah, and your Tarantinos and your Scorseses, and, right? Um, uh, and you get some excitement, like uh, like a Parasite. I right. wish we could have had uh, my favorite movie from from Sundance last year, which was The Farewell, in the mix. But, oh, right. Uh, but hopefully, this year we'll produce some other new ones that we'll be talking about all year. Well, I'm excited to have you on today, but I have to say I'm a little intimidated because it, it's funny. I was thinking about this as I was driving today, but I feel like what I'm going to be doing here talking to you about your lunch 
is sort of a different version of what you do professionally. Interviewing people? Well, yeah, but not just interviewing people, like creating intimacy in such a way that yeah. people open up and uh-huh. share things. <laughs> but I've known you for ages. Yeah, I know. So we are old fine. friends. I and should say that. I don't think you should feel intimidated. It is I who should feel intimidated. Why? Because my relationship to food is deranged as everybody who knows me knows all too well that is a powerful so word deranged. i've never really sort of plumbed it so i'm excited to see what we're gonna come oh up my with. gosh well before we get to that i do want to ask you like so i mean for those who don't know you've profiled this year alone like brad pitt yeah adam driver mm-hmm. and so when you sit down with someone like that in a situation maybe not that different from this what are your strategies to get somebody to open up to you that's interesting um it depends on the person. Sometimes you just have an immediate rapport with somebody like somebody like Taika Waititi. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. T- I, I do think I t- sort of come in with a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. I want it to feel like it's going to be fun, even if it does sort of almost always end up in a more emotional place than it feels like it's going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a couple things that you've got to do. One is I feel like just knowing other people who do this for a living and having you know, interact with them and, and knowing that a lot of their um, schedule is answering just the same questions over and right. over. My job is to sort of go in and in some fashion, some sort of subtle way, indicate that I'm not going to be that, that I'm going to be something a little different, that this is going to be less of an interview or an interrogation, more of just a general conversation. That's how I'd prefer it anyway. Well, I think one of the things I really like about your approach, too, is it's it's so clear how much you respect the artists that you're interviewing and their work and that you have a curiosity about the actual work itself. Yeah, well, I think that coupled with the fact that I don't take it for granted that if I'm asking somebody to be vulnerable in a conversation with me, that's a big ask. Right. They don't know how I'm going to portray that. Mm -hmm. They're putting faith in me, and I've got to sort of respond to that with that same sort of empathy that I'm demanding because Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I've been interviewed a handful of times and people have written it up and there've been moments where I've been reading that being like, Oh, I I think they misinterpreted or miscontextualized that. So I can only imagine what it's like to have somebody do that in a really sort of definitive way where Mm -hmm. everybody is reading about your personality and who you are and dissecting your sort of star persona. So when I ask for people to do that, I definitely try to write with as much empathy as I can. And it's interesting because the writing process is different than what what we're doing here, which is where I'm just capturing this conversation. But the writing is almost like a filter where you're taking this experience now and you're Mm -hmm. spinning it in some way. But you always kind of find like a cool way. And like I, I was telling you, I loved your first sentence of the Adam Driver one that he, oh, he said he had resting sphinx face. Yeah. I mean, that was great. I mean, but how long does it take you to come up with something like that? I mean, the wonderful ones are where they come to mind immediately. Yeah. But 5,000%, the hardest thing that I do is the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Once I get it to where it needs to be, like the rest just flows so naturally. But I've had so many articles. I don't know. I think this is actually more true of of when I've gone over to the Times, uh, before that I worked at Vulture, um, mm-hmm. and I've been at the Times now for about a year and a half. And when I first started, you know, it's it's about sort of learning the house style. It's right. about learning how to talk in like a somewhat different accent than you're, um, meant, that, that you are used to, mm-hmm. uh, but still trying to be you. Right. Uh, and so mastering those first few paragraphs was always my biggest challenge and sort of remains that because I know that if I get those right, then it just sort of presents the rest of it, you know? Like, until I get those first three paragraphs right and I read and tweak them 
mercilessly. Mm-hmm. They're probably the first three paragraphs of an article I spend as much time on as the as all the rest, and it doesn't even matter. It could be four thousand words or one thousand. It's interesting. It makes me think of <laughs> to tie it to food a little bit, like the first bites you have at a nice restaurant, yeah. or like if you don't enjoy the first course, you're not going to want to sit through the rest of the meal. So, like when you go to a nice meal and they give you an amuse bouche, like a little thing to put in your mouth just to try before the meal begins, it sort of to set the tone and say, this is who the chef is. This is what, this is what my purpose is. And so it feels like those first paragraphs are a way to introduce yourself in a I, way. I would almost liken it to the atmosphere of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, when you walk in, is it uh, bright or is it dark? Is it uh, colorful? Is it classy? Mm-hmm. What's the spirit of it? What kind of people work there? Because I would imagine that contextualizes the meal you're about to have right. to a great degree, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if it feels like a greasy spoon, then you're receiving the food like that. If it feels fancy, they can maybe even serve you some of that same stuff, but it would feel different, right? you know? So to me, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's sort of like that. It, it's, it's, I mean, those first few moments really sort of set the tone. Well, now that we're on food, I am going to quote you back to yourself. (laughs) You said your relationship to food was deranged, and we're not quite ready to hear about your lunch. Although, I have to say, for full disclosure reasons, that I am Kyle's neighbor. Our dogs are best friends. Uh And I'm very aware. Soulmates, even. What did you say? Soulmates. They're soulmates. Yeah, they're like Lady and the Tramp. Um, And his dog's name is Yoshi, I should say. Uh, But I know a lot about Kyle's lunch. And so, actually, (laughs) one of the reasons when we talked about you coming on is I almost feel like I know too much much like it's like i know what you eat for lunch and we're gonna get there but i just want to ask you about the word you just used earlier when you said that your relationship to food was deranged what did you mean by that well i feel like well and and one of the reasons i'm sort of excited to have this conversation is because i think we're of different minds on this Mm -hmm. but i talk to a lot of writers who sort of regard food as like something that arrives and you just sort of like shovel it down your gullet or you just snack all day, which is kind of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've always admired about you is that you're a writer, but you also care so much about the food preparation of it all. I'd probably be a lot more successful as a writer, though, if I if I didn't spend so much time on the food. Like I'm learning- I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, like being able to, first of all, no pun intended, like feed your brain in a different way, right. which I imagine is uh, what food preparation and cooking is not that I'd know personally for <laughs> right. sure, but you know, I mean, I, I love watching people do it because it looks so Zen. It looks mm-hmm. so relaxing. It's an interesting sort of problem solving situation it's true. that keeps you in your head in some fashion, but takes you out of the part of your head where you're probably, you know, that you're, that you're using to write. Well, I Would have to say, say well, I, I've always wanted to write a book somewhere down the line when I'm in my fifties or sixties about how learning how to cook made me a better writer. Yeah. And I think for me, the, the biggest lesson was patience and letting things just sort of happen like that with, with cooking, with like whether you're making bread and you have to let it rise or um, making a sauce and you have to let it simmer. There's a real lesson in just letting things be for a bit yeah. and then coming back to it and tasting it. And because and with, with my early writing stuff, I was so eager, especially as a blogger, when I started as a blogger, I was so eager to just put things out there and get, I mean, Twitter is addictive in that way and Instagram because it's like immediate result, immediate result. But for long form writing, as I'm sure you know, with the things you write, it's like you have to have a certain amount of patience you have to let themes develop and ideas and i really learned that from cooking i mean i again i admire that (laughs) because when i first started trying to learn how to cook it was just a fiasco (laughs) and then i think since then part of the reason it's intimidated me is that 
I'll watch something like Top Chef or, or Great British Baking Show. And these people who seem so good at it, they embark on their recipes not knowing if it's going to work or not. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes they pull it out of the oven and they follow the directions. They know how this works and it still turns out bad. Mm-hmm. That's scary to me, which is not to say that like sometimes I don't embark on writing an article and it's just bad for a while, mm-hmm. but I know that I can get it there. And, you know, by the time you read it, hopefully you'll be like, this is great or good at least. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I screw up, um, a meal, mm-hmm. then I have to eat the bad meal. That's just adding like an extra layer of punishment to it. Like I, I already like- know I screwed it up. Now you make me taste it. <laughs> well, I feel like there's a lot to explore there actually though, because you are so good at your job and what you do and you've achieved so much. So it is interesting to think of you going into an arena where you can't, where there's no guarantees that the work that you'll put in will result in something that you can be proud of. Right. Um, which actually is a perfect segue. <laughs> the time has come, Kyle. Sure. What did you have for lunch today? Well, I mean, nothing that anybody would be proud of. I thought <laughs> that I would eat like a classic, awful Kyle lunch okay. in preparation for this. Um, which is usually whatever I can find at the gas station that's just a block from our house. Uh, and in I, this I go case, to this gas station very often yeah. to get gas. That's the only thing I get there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they know me all too well at this point. Um, uh, I, I got a Monster Slim Jim Tabasco flavored, a big beef stick, um, a bag of Doritos, a string cheese, and those uh, Welch's fruit snack things. This one was berries and cherries. For health reasons? Like, <laughs> as a fruit option? No, just because it's tasty. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. This is, and I have to say. For health? No, there was, none of those selections were based on health. <laughs> I was just imagining that as, like, the fruit, like, in a tray of, like, a school lunch. Right. Um, <laughs> well, here's the thing. is like, this is lunch therapy. It's not a lunch confessional. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, my role here is not to judge your lunch, but instead to explore your relationship to this lunch. Yeah and see why and how it it reveals something about you. Um, And so already, I think you kind of hinted at this, and I want to hear a little bit more about this, the idea of writing being being the focus and lunch being, or the idea of food almost being like a luxury or something that would take you away from the writing. Mm -hmm. Has that always been true for you? I think in some fashion, yeah. I think a lot of writers regard food as fuel, Mm -hmm. which is not to say that I don't like good food, although, you know, my lunch would indicate that maybe (laughs) I've got um, a screw loose. You know, if (laughs) if I go to a restaurant or something, I really love it. And the funny thing is, I think even when I am not paying much attention to it. I eat very slowly, Mm -hmm. you know, like I sort of savor it. Um, My boyfriend, I'm fortunate enough that he cooks. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always found it interesting because he'll make something for us and it'll take him, you know, however long from a, a half hour to an hour and a half. And then we'll sit down to eat it and he will scarf that down in 30 (laughs) seconds, no matter what it is. Right. Whereas mine takes forever for me to get through uh, in part because I'm talking and in part because I just don't eat it that fast. I think I'm savoring it or it's, yeah. Um, so I, I think, I guess the commonality there is that I'm inattentive uh-huh. to food in a way, you know? But you're so attentive to everything else. So yeah. I guess I, I mean, it kind of makes us, makes me want to kind of dissolve the frame to use a movie thing back yeah. to like your childhood sure. and, and food in your childhood and what kind of stuff you ate as a kid. Yeah. Um, well, I had an interesting situation growing up in my house. It was, uh, me and my parents, uh, my twin sister, 
my grandma and my great grandma. Wow. We all lived in a house together. Um, for at least the, the early part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And then my uh, great grandma was moved into a resting home. Um, but, um, my grandma cooked for the family. Um, you know, she was sort of, uh, she cared for us. She cooked for us as my parents were working. Is it um, your mo- mother's mother or your father's yeah, mother? Yeah, uh, it's, it's my mother's mother. Um, and she was a great cook. But she also, as is the manner of many grandparents, spoiled us. Mm -hmm. So if there were certain things that I had an affinity for, she would make those for me. And if there were certain things that I didn't like as a child, she wouldn't make those because she wanted (laughs) me to be happy all the time and she wanted to spoil me. So what were some of the things that you loved that she made for you? And what were some of the things you didn't love? I loved... I mean, this is the Irish boy in me, mm-hmm. but I loved steak and potatoes. Mm-hmm. I love mac Which you still cheese. do. Whenever oh, I make yeah, a steak absolutely. on Instagram, you're like, that looks good. Yes, right. <laughs> Completely, 5,000%. Okay. I'm, I'm so carnivorous. I wish I wasn't. Um, uh, I loved lamb chops. That was my favorite, although like very famously within my family when I was really little and I would eat the lamb chops, I would say a prayer for the lamb that had to die before I could eat so well. Was it because it was a baby? Like, like a lamb is, it's just something that I sort of, you know, when it says, when it's lamb chops, it's like, Oh, (laughs) a lamb. Um, I think as a child, I had trouble reconciling those things. That's very funny. The desire to eat with the sort of compassion I felt. It was easier for me to believe that like a juicy steak, uh, came down from heaven like snow and was mm-hmm. caught by angels using gossamer nets. <laughs> and it just happened to find its way onto my plate. So she made you some meat. I mean, that's a big theme yeah. in terms of the food that you loved. And is that still true? Yeah, 5,000%. Uh, Max, Max, my boyfriend, was just talking the other day about, oh God, what is the diet? Atkins yeah. or something? Keto. Which is just, or keto, yeah. Which is basically just protein, right? Mm-hmm. Like a ton of protein and meats, sure. which is like... You know, aside from like the, the shitty versions of the, these things that I eat, kind of what I eat. I right. eat a ton of protein. Well, you had Slim Jim, a Slim Jim for lunch yeah. as part of your lunch. It's hard for me to not to go very long without protein. Mm-hmm. Um, I I need it. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. And what about the family dynamic in terms of food? I mean, was, was it was your whole family also carnivorous in the same way? Did everybody love a big steak and potatoes for dinner or was were there divisions within that yeah for the most part i think as my sister got older and her sort of older teens she mm-hmm. became a little more vegetarian not mm-hmm. completely but like a little more like inclined towards that mm-hmm. um so if there was like a big steak maybe sometimes it would just be for me or right. my dad um but uh but yeah i mean my sister was into artichokes and other things but <laughs> i was like no gross i won't touch it well i was gonna ask you because you said your, your grandmother wouldn't make you the things you didn't like so what were some of the things that she didn't make you or that she avoided feeding you i mean honestly vegetables vegetables <laughs> I feel like except I, yeah. carrots which i love and continue to eat really carrots mm-hmm. it's funny because i've served i've had you over for dinner before and sometimes i notice that you will mostly eat the meat and not eat your vegetables I don't want to be yeah. like your mother figure and be like, wow. eat your vegetables, Kyle. Yeah, carrots and potatoes. I mean, I'm trying to get better about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, I mean, you know, you have, everyone has their predilections. But yeah. I'm curious, like you mentioned Irish. Uh-huh. So was your family, like, when did they come from Ireland? How far back did it go? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know the this, this sort of specifics of it. And, and again, this is on my mom's side. My dad's side is half Kiwi from New Zealand really? and, and sort of more Scottish uh, on my grandfather's side. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. And you just um, traveled to New Zealand. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know you no, were a quarter wonderful. Kiwi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, my, my grandma on my dad's side was a New Zealand war bride. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay, but your mom's side was Irish. Yeah. I'm trying to like draw a connection though, maybe between like coming to America and viewing meat as sort of like a sign of success or a sign of having made it. Like, because I, th- I know that's true in my family. Like, my dad loves nothing more than to go to a steakhouse. Yeah. And ordering a big steak is like a sign of like having made it, you know? Uh-huh. And I wonder if there's like any residual. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, on my, on my mom's side, they're not recent immigrants. Uh, but they are super Irish. Right. Um, I think it's just the Irish thing, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. meat and potatoes. It's so classic. Right. I guess that is. Just uh, I don't know whether it's born of anxiety or not, but certainly to me, I associate it with comfort. I mean, another of my sort of shameful eating habits is using um, uh, seamless, but only to order from the sizzler that is like three <laughs> blocks away and I'll get the steak and potatoes and maybe sometimes the shrimp. Really? I didn't know you did <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, because I just want a steak real bad. Oh, wow. So how often do you eat steak, would you say? Oh, uh, well, I mean like a full-blown, like they're cooking a steak and it's traditional. I don't know, probably once a week, okay. unless I'm like going out to eat for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I'll eat other things. It's it's a lot of work to prepare a steak. So, like, unless I'm seamlessing it or at a restaurant with someone, it's not something that I will make on my own. Because when I first started trying to do that in college, it was just so um, uh, terrible. Right. <laughs> but I was like, I just can't, I can't keep doing this to myself. I'll teach you how to make a steak. Sure. You just have to get a cast iron skillet, which is not expensive, uh-huh. and get it really hot. Yeah. And the, your apartment will be filled with smoke, unfortunately. If you, you have a little backyard, though, you can probably get a grill or something and do it yeah, out there. Maybe. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm very curious, like, to draw the line, though, to connect the dots between the, like, childhood of gram- living with your grandmother yeah. and your great-grandmother and eat, having home-cooked meals to this moment at the gas station of eating uh-huh. this food. I mean, was were there lunches growing up? Did, you, did your grandmother make you lunch to bring to school? Yes. Uh, my grandmother and my mom would, uh, get, would do lunch for me. I mean, that was more of my mom's job, and um, I would usually have, what would I have? Peanut butter sandwich, um, Doritos, uh-huh. a constant. Okay. Um, some sort of meat a lot of the time. Um, uh, and then usually some sort of treat, which is not dissimilar to the lunch I just described. I know. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. And I think those were sort of more less like food preparation, more just like put food in thing, mm-hmm. which is my tendency to like, just be like, where's a food that is like immediately available to eat. I will snack on it. But also I, I, th- I was thinking about the word you used earlier about comfort. Yeah. And it sounds like there, there was something, com- there's probably something comforting about eating this food. That is the same food that you ate in your childhood. Yeah, probably. I mean, even the sort of rule of fours with the, the lunch that I got, uh-huh. I mean, there's always four things in the, in the lunch bag growing up. Um, but then once I was sort of responsible for my own welfare in college, mm-hmm. I did not know what to do with myself. Yeah. I mean, I tried to make things, but you can't do very much in a college dorm room. You also are sort of on your own and, and able to indulge your worst impulses, which were was was aided and abetted by like, at that point, a very fast metabolism. Uh-huh. So <laughs> yeah, well, why not the club. eat? Yeah. Why not eat corn dogs and ice cream all day? Which oh, I wow. would do. <laughs> okay, so it's funny because it's like I almost sense that there's almost like a childlike quality to sure. some of the food that you like. I mean, no, I think it. I I think I absolutely am completely immature in that sense. I think that people, um, when they talk to me, maybe it's because of like. My, the timbre of my voice or my general sort of like calm mm-hmm. and confidence. 
but I think they think I've got shit more figured out than I do across the board. <laughs> there's there's certain areas where I've got my shit figured out, and then certain areas where I might still be um, in need of uh, of like. Uh, um, a government appointed guardian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because it's like you've been on many podcasts and you're always asked to talk about film. But I feel like in a weird way, having you on a food podcast is actually you at your most vulnerable. Probably. I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah. Because nobody asked me about this. Yeah. But- well, no, I mean, like people in my life have asked me, but in a rhetorical, why do you eat that <laughs> kind of way where they almost don't want the answer? Well, I'm sensing a lot of self-judgment about your diet. Yeah. About- well, I think reasonably so. Right. I can't continue eating like this for the rest of my life but if you had to like summarize what you think is wrong with it is it just nutritional is it yeah it's a lot of things things i I don't know i mean sophistication maybe it would be nice to know how to cook um but yeah nutrition i mean that's not so nutritious right just essentially like processed deli meats like the nitrates and all that are probably not good for you especially as you age and Mm -hmm. cholesterol and all of that i mean you know, like I, I had moments where I would be more inclined to like put a chicken breast in the oven and eat that with like an apple or something. Mm-hmm. But it takes 20 minutes for the chicken breast to be like in a good place. And, you know, pulling deli meats out of the fridge, you can eat them immediately. <laughs> so that's a good thing to ask about, which is time, your mm-hmm. sense of time. And, and that's come up a couple of times already yeah. where it's like the idea of cooking this whole meal or your boyfriend cooking the whole meal and then scarfing it down in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. That seemed to, that seemed significant to you that there was all this time invested in this thing that may or may not come out. And then it goes, disappears immediately. And then the chicken breast too, that it takes time away from you. So is there, is time, is your time precious to you? Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, I think especially when my job is like super, Mm -hmm. uh, when it's at its sort of peak of, of busyness, then I do start like, sort of regarding the day and the week in like increments. Okay. I've got these windows to do these things. uh, And I just don't even factor food into those windows. I just assume I'll snack as I'm doing those things. Um, But yeah, no, I've always been sort of fascinated by the poignancy (laughs) of spending so much time working on something that you eat so quickly. And I don't think I've ever been able to completely wrap my head around it. But in, in this time that we're living in where people are are practicing mindfulness and trying to like slow down and meditate, mm-hmm. I mean, do you find yourself curious, not even just about cooking, but about, you know, taking the time away from work or, I mean, are, do you have other hobbies or things that you do that are not necessarily good uses of your time, but that are just recreational or yeah. let you step away? What are they? Yeah. I mean, I'll play my switch. I'll <laughs> read. I'll watch something. But why I'll is play playing a Switch dog? not a waste of time? And because cooking you don't is a waste know of- that you're going to play it for an hour. You just think <laughs> you're resetting your brain like uh, a typewriter ribbon. Um, that's interesting. So it's like it's the not knowing how long it's going to... It's like, it's like the... It, it almost feels like cooking to you is so foreign and mm-hmm. and the results are so unpredictable. Well, cooking you- also is very specific. Like it's going to take this long. You right. know, like whereas embarking on a video game or, <laughs> or you know, uh, reading something on the internet... You can tell yourself you're going to be done with it in five or ten minutes, and then mm-hmm. suddenly it's an hour later. Well, what's, what's surprising to me about our conversation is that I, you know, I've met writers or I've had writers on here before. We're like, well, yeah, I'm a very busy writer, and just food isn't that important to me. But, uh-huh. but the difference between that and what you're saying is that 
there's almost like a self recrimination or it's just almost like you're, you're unhappy with your own relationship to food. Like, I think that seems to be the difference. Well, I think it could be happier. I mean, when you were talking about mindfulness, yeah, I think I actually have become a lot more mindful in almost every area of my life over the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, where, um, there was like a binge model when it came to work, especially. Um, and I've really, even though I work really hard, have, endeavor to like spend to really sort of claim time outside of that. Cause I think I love my job so much that I can devote more to it than I should, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the, that's the sort of peril that they don't tell you about loving what you do, which is that you might overcommit yourself to it. Right. Uh, because of the enjoyment factor and you need to take time out. That's not related to that. So especially in recent years, I've been a lot more mindful. I've been a lot more, inclined to do things I've never done before and Mm -hmm. savor them, live in the moment, be earnest, take my armor off, be vulnerable. But I don't know that my eating habits Mm. have gotten as dramatically uh, different. But you talked about savoring your food. Yeah. When you're savoring food, do you feel like you are being mindful about the food that you're ingesting? I guess I probably am in some way. Yeah. I don't want to eat while I'm on the phone. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I feel like you're wasting it at that point Mm -hmm. because you're paying more attention to who you're talking to than the food. But at the same time, I do. I mean, I do eat while I write. Mm -hmm. But I find that weirdly like kind of again, no pun intended, feeds the writing. Mm -hmm. Not just in the sort of fuel way, but I don't know. There's probably some sort of synesthetic situation where if you're experiencing some sort of pleasure while you're eating, like Mm -hmm. you can, I don't know, it finds its way into the writing. I think everything I do or everything I'm personally feeling finds itself into the right, finds its way into the writing. Sort of in a way, again, to sort of extend the food thing, um, the like water for chocolate um, mm-hmm. situation where the emotions that you feel, you can then make the person who consumes the food feel. That's something that I absolutely feel is true of writing. That mm. if I am experiencing an emotion when I write something, um, you'll know it even if it doesn't seem to be, you know, even it, it, it's not that the article or the words or anything have to beg for that, mm-hmm. but there's just a feeling I don't know. There's something that yeah. sort of transmutes. Or an ardor. Is that the right word? Like if you if you have a subject that you care a lot about. Yeah. But I was going to ask, like, on that same theme, like when you think about your grandmother's cooking or, or your boyfriend cooking for you, is is that the sense of like them transmitting something to you? Or when you think about eating those meals, that something was being transmitted in the same way? I think so. I think care and attention. Um, I mean, that's how I receive food that's made for me. I think it's just wonderful that anyone would do it, Mm -hmm. Um, that somebody would put thought into it and that, you know, present me with something that is so wonderful that I can't personally do Mm. Um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it, it to me, it's it's like an expression of love. Well, that makes me somehow think about the idea of self-care and the idea <laughs> right, of cooking, sure. cooking for yourself yeah. as a way to, to care for yourself uh-huh. and whether there's something to that in terms of, you you know, like I, I, I for some reason, I'm thinking about you ordering the steak from Sizzler. Yeah. It's almost like you're asking Sizzler to take care of you. Like, yeah, I am. Yeah. Please, won't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, that that I, I'm thinking of two things as you say that, which is one is um, I think I am a caretaker of other people in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think because of that, maybe people think they don't need to take care of me mm-hmm. all that much. 
it's been sort of a thing. Part of that is me have having to and being able to ask for care when I need it. Mm-hmm. But part of it, I think, also is that once I sort of you know was able to sort of stand on my own two feet, I presented as such in a way where like people don't feel the need to always take care of me. Um, so when somebody does through food, it's really um, it's always surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how many breakfasts. Uh, my boyfriend will make for me. It's always surprising to me when he makes it for me because it's me being taken care of in a way that I don't think I normally am Mm -hmm. in my entire life. And by the way, I'm married to somebody who has the exact same disposition in terms of liking to be taken care of, which is, you know, I mean, again, this, this whole thing began with the idea that there's no judgment. And I think like, there, I, I am sensing an overall theme, which is like the, the lunches you had growing up, the meals your grandmother made you, and even the, the, the snacks that you got for yourself today were all, are all a version of taking care of your, or being taken care of in some way. Yeah, well, the, certainly the Sizzler situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, but the other, the flip side of that is what you also said, which is self-care. If I'm not putting good things into my system, mm-hmm. then am I caring enough about myself? Which I think is also a thing um, that I've thought about over the last few years, I think, you know, spending most of my, like all of my twenties and then into my, almost all of my thirties feeling like I was in something of a defensive crouch as far as making things happen, as Mm -hmm. far as making money, which I like did not, I was, you know, living rent to rent every month until I was probably around 28. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, that in part sort of informed, you know, what I would eat because I would just like right. buy ramen in bulk. And well, your eat eye it. was on the prize. You were like, you were driven. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't going to spend additional money on food mm-hmm. and eating out, you know, which I just couldn't afford to do. So I would buy really inexpensive things that I still eat to some degree, which mm-hmm. are, you know, gas station foods, <laughs> um, peanut butter, uh, noodles, things like that. Um, And I think it's only recently that I've been like, it's okay for you to spend more on yourself. Mm -hmm. Like instead of always going for like the cheap option. I I think actually you were helpful uh, when it came to this because right before I started the times job, I went to Mexico for a couple of days to Tulum and it was just, you know, a solo trip just to sort of put a period on one job and, and begin the next one fresh. And I was trying to figure out, Um, where to stay and I found this great hotel room and there was like you know the best possible room and then there was the one that was not as good but it was it was still good it was just like the second best Mm -hmm. and I was gonna choose the second best and I felt like that was like a real splurge on myself and you said something like what you let me because you I'm sure you know exactly the thing um which is uh you know about spending money on travel oh uh Wait, was it the Oscar Wilde quote? Or is yeah, it any, yeah, yeah. anyone who um, uh, lives within their means has a serious lack of imagination? Oh, well, <laughs> that's, that's a good one. But no, I think you said something like, uh, it was just something about like, you'll never regret the money that you spend on that sort of thing. Hearing your, editing your voice sounds so wise. Like. No, well, I don't think I'm even getting it right. It's not, uh, <laughs> wow, I must have. I'll, I'll I wish this. I remembered my own quote. But. No, but it was just something like that. Like, you know, you'll, you'll sort of never regret being able to spend that money on yourself in a vac- on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that completely transformed the way I even think about vacations Good. for one. And so I bought the, um, or I, you know, I, I got the 
best possible hotel room and it was amazing. And I'm glad I did it because I don't think I was used to feeling like I deserve to be able to mm. invest in myself in that way. And is there any connection to feeling like you didn't necessarily deserve the nice hotel room and feeling like you don't necessarily deserve the good food like in life? Well, yes. In the sense that like the only times I've really ever bought and made food, like prepared it, got a recipe, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is if I was making it for somebody else, Mm -hmm. which is part of the caretaker thing. But then also part of like, am I going to make like this incredible steak and, season it and have it with this side and Mm -hmm. it's really good and then eat it by myself. Mm -hmm. Like I'd I'd so much rather get the additional enjoyment or even the motivation from doing that for somebody else. But maybe that's also, again, my caretaker personality. It's it's funny because like I love cooking for myself. Yeah, but, but I think it's because I didn't grow up with any home cooking. Uh-huh. So cooking for myself was like, was a discovery. It was sort of like, oh my god, I can nurture myself. I can feed myself. You know that, that there was something to that for me. But you've always had a tendency, or I mean, like you know, pretty much the entire time I've known you and before that, you've always had a tendency to not just cook for yourself, but to cook for others to learn from, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that was your blog or your newsletter and especially your Instagram, Mm -hmm. you really like the sensation of sharing it. Even if it's not a literal come here, eat this, you want to share something about that experience. That's true. I don't want to do it. The solitariness of cooking for yourself is what's unappealing to you. And I wonder if to you. Hey, don't turn the tables here. No, I mean, like, because you have come up with so many ways to share that. Yeah, it is funny. Like, it is hard for me to be in the kitchen alone without turning on Instagram and Uh doing stories. But but it's a weird cyclical thing because the people tend to like the stories of me cooking. So it's sort of. Sure, I love it. Yeah, so it's sort of like, well, I'm going to not. You know, sometimes I think it would be nice to just sort of make a meal and not share it with the world well would it oh my god i knew this was gonna happen i knew you were gonna turn the tables wait so i have a couple more things to ask you wait 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 answer my question first (laughs) wait would it be nicer to do it for just for myself well i understand the impulse that would lead you to have that thought which is like would it be nicer to just like forget about the social media and the chronicling it but i i wonder would it actually be nicer would it or would it feel like Something was missing that you really enjoy about that. I mean, hilariously, like we just went to Japan and on the way there, I was like, I'm going to have the most Zen trip. I'm going to take turn off social media. I'm not going to share any of this. I'm just going to have this very private vacation and just sort of really recenter myself. And immediately we got off the plane and I, we were like at some train terminal and there was a cool poster and I like fighting my hand was going into my pocket and I, I just had to take a picture and then the next thing I knew I was taking pictures of the breakfast the lunch the de- you know I just I, I don't know maybe it's just the thing that's going on in our culture but well I think that's true but you know this is something that you and I have talked about is I really enjoy your social media presence because I feel like other people do that in sort of um in a way that feels very covetous needy mm-hmm. um manufactured all of these things, all of the sort of like bad impulses to why we post the things we post. Whereas I feel like almost always when it comes to whether it's your trip to Japan or when you're sharing your cooking process on Instagram stories, it's more about accessibility Mm -hmm. and like learning. You like when people are doing that alongside you and you like breaking things down so that they don't seem too intimidating. Well, thank you. 
but buttering up your therapist will not make me less <laughs> no, aggressive. Go ahead. Um, I don't mind. But I wanted to ask you about vegetables. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because I just want to ask you, like, like when you, like, you've you've been over here, and I feel I don't remember which meal it was, but I feel uh-huh. like there maybe it was broccoli on your plate or yeah. something. And, and I actually noticed, and I shouldn't be bringing this into the session, it's but, okay. but like, it. I noticed you kind of like pushing it aside <laughs> and like not really. But, True, like, I'm a child. <laughs> but like, what what are you thinking? Even if you were not with me, but like, if you're just like out to dinner with mm-hmm. like colleagues or with Adam Driver, I don't know, and like, mm-hmm. and like the, a platter of roasted broccoli comes to the table and he's like, ooh, this is delicious, try some. Like, what's going through your head when somebody offers you a vegetable? And how Well, you- if Adam Driver was doing it, <laughs> I would be excited because it would be a great point of tension in the, oh. in the interview, Adam Driver trying to get me to eat broccoli. So you would There's say prob- to him- That's probably a metaphor for something. <laughs> but you would say to him, I don't really like broccoli, I don't really want any. I mean, how would you handle that? How do you handle it in general, like out in public? Some of the stuff that you're talking about as deranged and childlike, how do you how do you bring that into this world that you're in where you're surrounded by people who are maybe at meals with you? And well, stuff? I think it's just rare that people are making meals for me. Right, maybe not, um, yeah. You know, like the only two people in my life who make meals for me are like truly you and my boyfriend. <laughs> really? Um, so it's not a problem that comes up a lot. Right. Because you both know me. Um, or a professional meal, like if you're having lunch with a colleague or well, something. Well, I'll probably order the thing that I know I will eat. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel at, like, at a dinner, though, at my place when like everyone's eating the vegetable and you're not? Like, are you, what is going through your head when you see a vegetable on a plate is what I'm asking. Um, I, uh, I look at the vegetable and I'm like, I refuse to be a part of this narrative. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I don't know. Um, I mean, I will eat vegetables sometimes and I'm a lot more inclined to do it if someone has made them for me right. or at least sort of. Um, venture outside of the rivers and the lakes that I'm used to. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I still just don't like it. And it's obviously me regressing to some like childhood plays because the vegetable is not going to, you know, hurt me. Um, It might not taste as good as the meat does, but it's like, you know, plenty of people eat them. They're fine. But there's a huge spectrum um, of, preparations of vegetables i mean uh-huh. like, i think a lot of people grew up with like boiled brussels sprouts and like frozen broccoli which is watery and like yeah. we get like in an airplane or something and then mm. now there's obviously this whole new culture of like roasting vegetables and you know even frying vegetables or put, slathering them in cheese or you know well now we're getting somewhere. right so, so you have so you'll maybe eat something if it's a little more like yeah exciting i I am a child you need to come up with some way Uh to like trick me into eating it so you know slathering a vegetable and cheese is absolutely the version of like here is the plane open your mouth (laughs) here is the baby food does this come up though in your relationship when your boyfriend cooks for you does he try to get you to eat vegetables yes and how do you handle that i do it because he made them for me (laughs) i think i still don't think to his satisfaction um really it's uh, yeah yeah you, you don't eat them to his... I mean, you don't finish your vegetables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. I mean, it's interesting cause it's, because I, I am some, somehow contrasting this like childlike quality about mm-hmm. food with the very adult world that you inhabit, which is you are writing for the New York Times. You're writing authoritative, authoritative essays about like which, which movies have the best shot at winning the Oscar that are read by studio executives and famous directors. And so it's almost like the childlike stuff is like a, a way to sort of escape that very adult world. Maybe, maybe, but I also think it's a good dichotomy to have, um, that enhances my ability to write, um, which is to not just do it with sort of like irritating inscribed on a tablet authority, but to have that 
there'd be some sort of locus of vulnerability to mm-hmm. it. That's interesting. Um, I just don't think I could write without that. Sometimes I call that my sense of humor. Sometimes I'm writing serious pieces that don't have a sense of humor, but there's always going to be some sort of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could write well if I didn't feel like I was venturing something. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I do think there is something that something to the idea of um, staying in touch with um, an emotional experience that is that could be called childlike or that could also be called sort of like liminal, like where Mm -hmm. you're in a state where you could be learning or feeling in a new way. I haven't heard that that word since college. Liminal. Did I just dress up my, uh, my hatred of vegetables and (laughs) and fancy talk? No, I think that made sense. I mean, it's, it's, you're sort of saying, I I, I thought it was interesting. You use the word vulnerability. So you think, you think about your relationship to food as a vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, I do because I just don't think I, I should be eating the way that I'm eating at this stage in my life. So what, I'm sure doctors will eventually agree with me. <laughs> so what's stopping you at this point? I mean, we talked about time. Time, We talked yeah. about it, but, but you play video games, so yeah. it's not just time. But they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also this aversion that you have, maybe vegetables and things. But maybe you should start, I mean, I'm going to be a real therapist here, yeah. by making learning how to make a steak for yourself. I mean, yeah. maybe start with the things that you love. Um, and make the, make potatoes, make you know, and yeah. then and maybe you know wean yourself away from the gas station. Well, the unfortunate thing is, I think the best way to sort of trick myself into that would be making it for someone else. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, my boyfriend lives in New York, so right. it's a long distance situation where mm-hmm. he's not here all the time, um, or even a lot of the time. Um, so, you know, making a steak, I would love that if I felt like I had somebody to share it with. Right. So it's it's double the ask because I would be doing it for myself. And it's interesting because, I, I mean, I know you very well, and so this is another case of me bringing something into the You're allowed, it's fine. I know, but you're an intensely social person, yeah. too. So I do think that was interesting that you just said that you wouldn't want to just make it for yourself. Yeah. So would you ever want to like have a friend over and like make steak together? I mean, well, yeah, but I just, I would worry that I wouldn't do it well. Yeah. You know, so like, basically you need me to come over and teach you. I don't to- know. <laughs> I think this is the thing that's so daunting about yeah. it is that there's sort of like, you know, this sort of vast medium uh, space that right. like is hard to surmount because I don't have the person to make it for. And if I had just some, you know, Somebody else, like that's not my boyfriend, who would forgive the steak not being great. Right. I would feel bad about it if I invited them over for dinner. Right. And it sucks. Well, that is hard. Like with the very, I used to have a roommate when I started cooking, and she was so wary because I, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And I'll never forget. Like I made a coffee cake, and it came out of the oven, and it was a little, un- it was, it was a little questionable about whether it was still, whether it was cooked all the way through. And she was like, "I'm not eating that. Like that's not cooked because I cut into it. And it was a little runny." Wow. Yeah. And you remember this vividly? I do remember it, but I understand that. Vul- I mean, I think the word vulnerability has come up a lot today. Yeah. And there is absolutely a vulnerability in serving food to people that you've prepared where you don't necessarily know what you're doing yet. Right. So I get that. No, and I like being vulnerable, but I don't like it if it sort of clashes with my impulse to be a caretaker, yeah. which so, you know, I, I don't mind being vulnerable if it's something I alone am experiencing it or, or in a, you know, in a less high stakes way. Well, but think, but yeah. being vulnerable and then like making a shitty meal for somebody is like, no, I would feel terrible. But it also makes me think a little bit about somehow the word mastery is coming to me because uh-huh. I was thinking about the way you, like you talked about rewriting the first three paragraphs of yeah. your of your articles and that there's a certain mastery to that. It's like you want to master the art of, of writing the profile, right. of writing the think piece, you know, and um, 
And I feel like it, it would probably be very difficult for you to enter an arena where you'd be so on the opposite end of that. I mean, you're not wrong. I think as I've gotten older, I've challenged myself to do that more. Right. Um, Are there other areas besides food where you feel vulnerable and things that you'd want to try and things you'd want to do that you're not, not necessarily good at? Not necessarily things that have the same sort of arc of mastery as cooking, but just, you know, like deciding I'm going to uh, bungee jump or... Which you did, right? Yeah. How did that feel? I mean, I was excited and it was scary and it was just something where I'm like, okay, well, five minutes from now I will have done this and it'll be a completely new <laughs> sensation and experience. If you were asked like you could either bungee jump again or cook a dinner party for four people what would you say what would you do well i would do the dinner party because uh, i hadn't done it okay you know like right. that's part of what appealed to me about the bungee jump mm-hmm. because i think you know i just turned 40 and i think that there is even before 40 in a lot of people this tendency to be like okay i've gotten to this point in my life by hook and by crook it's taken a lot of work effort emotions it's been hard and i'm going to fucking plateau from here on out Mm -hmm. you know or you feel like you've got yourself and the world pretty much figured out Mm -hmm. you are a creature of comfort if you're fortunate Mm -hmm. you've been able to set your life up how it ought to be and that's the way you're going to write it until the very end and i can't quibble with anybody's desire to do that because that makes a lot of sense me personally though if i felt that i was too comfortable or had set my life up in that way where i plateaued i would be unsatisfied I, so I am always sort of looking for new experiences, new ways to be vulnerable and open mm-hmm. so that I don't become kind of a closed off, finished off person. That's really interesting. So does food seem like the great, like the, the thing of all the things that is the, the hardest to reach? Or the Yeah, hard- I mean, it, it, in some ways, yeah. whether it's the food I make for myself or learning it or, you know, those things. I just wish... I had more of a reason to learn and make it than just doing it for myself. Right. Because unfortunately that has just has simply not proven to be enough uh, motivation. But if, if um, your boyfriend were living here and he continued to make meals for you, you would eat them. Yeah. So it's maybe it's just about the long distance of it all that makes it tricky. In terms yeah. of, you don't maybe necessarily need to become a cook. It's just... Well, also, if somebody is making food, a lot yeah. of the time, I mean, I know you don't love me coming into the kitchen when you're making something, <laughs> but I love it. And I that's part of oh. why I like your Instagram is because I feel like... You can come watch. I, I can do that. I'm getting better about that. Um, and Talk about me like... Trying yeah. to push myself, I have to like be more comfortable with people in my kitchen. Unless so when I'm bleary eyed during breakfast, but if you know, my boyfriend were making I feel like I've said my boyfriend yeah, so Max. many times. Yeah. I apologize to <laughs> single listeners because I, I would be oh. um rebelling against me as well. Yeah. Um at least he doesn't live here. At least give me that. Um <laughs> but uh if he's making dinner, then I I enjoy watching him and seeing how he does it. So have you been in a situation, I keep thinking about you in in arenas where you're very comfortable and then in arenas where you're not comfortable. Uh And I'm curious, have you gone to a dinner party or been in in an environment where food was served to you where you felt intensely uncomfortable because it was not something you wanted to eat? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll tell you this, this award season has been like that. Usually you would go to these shows, and this is a thing that I do for work, I I go to a lot of award shows Mm -hmm. up until the Oscars. And usually, and I, I feel bad for having ever complained about it, you would get like a chicken breast or a salmon, mm-hmm. you know, potatoes and I don't know, asparagus. Like airplane food. Yeah, but hopefully <laughs> somewhat better preserved. Right. Um, and fresher. 
Right. But this year, I don't know whether it's to appease Joaquin Phoenix, to reduce a carbon footprint, or because it's cheaper. Everything is plant-based. <laughs> I love this it for you. It is the new thing <laughs> that has great. swept every award show. <laughs> so, like, I went to the Critics' Choice Awards a few weeks ago, and it was literally, like, a lettuce leaf with, like... <laughs> I don't know, three other veggies in it. And I'm like, this is not a meal. This is the universe. What are you talking about? A Kyle Buchanan intervention. This is, it will only, it will only push me to pick up a slim gym from the gas station on the way there. So did you not eat the lettuce leaf with the three vegetables in it? No one ate the lettuce leaf with three vegetables. I don't even think Joaquin Phoenix ate that. Really? It was just the most meager, sad situation. It's almost like if you said, Kyle, make a vegetable thing. I'd be like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you like carrots, though, so if it had been a carrot, you might have eaten it. I would have snacked on them. Right. Sure. Is yeah. that the only vegetable you like? No. Well, potatoes can. Oh, potatoes. What about fruit? I like I like fruit. Yeah. Okay. I eat bananas. I eat apples. Have you ever come over to my place and encountered a dinner that made you uncomfortable? No, um, because you cater to me like my grandma did. <laughs> I've had you moments know what though, I'll, where you I, know what I, want. I wonder if I've, I feel like I served. Did I serve you like chili recently? Did you like chi- do you like chili? I ate chili. You ate it. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm always wondering like, is this like too far afield? from what he might I mean, like. you should push me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. Maybe, maybe. Well, we, we're almost out of time. We're not quite there. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, now that we're almost towards the end with film and movies, and I guess that's the same thing, but are there food movies that you love? Oh. Um, I know that's a big left turn, but I, I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask you about, you know. It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, I, I said like Water for Chocolate earlier because... I think I saw that when I was a teenager mm-hmm. and the idea of being able to put what you're feeling into the food made me think about food, but then also other things in a different way. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I feel like from that on, I'm just going to come up with all, all those coming to mind are literally movies that are about food or right. restaurants. But or you chefs. love um, Nancy Myers kitchens. I know that. I did. Well, I love Nancy Myers movies. Yeah. She has I like a lot Nancy of Myers cooking. movies because they're, you know, they're not high stakes a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just people sitting around cooking and making stuff and drinking wine. And I, like that aspect. I like hangout movies, um, which usually the, do incorporate a little bit of that. There was one sequence though that really angered me, which was when in a Nancy Myers. Movie. Yeah, when Mer- when Meryl Streep is the one with Meryl Streep and Steve Martin. It's complicated. It's complicated where she has she's, they're on a date and um, and she's like, "I'm going to make you croissants from uh-huh. scratch," which is insane. I is mean, it? oh yeah, to make croissants, you have to like let them rise. You have to roll out a butter block. I mean, it's uh-huh. just, it's just, it's one of the most complicated. How long does it take? It could take hours and hours. Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've never was the implication t- supposed to be that it did take a long time? Just, or? She was just like, oh, I'll just throw some, throw some croissants together uh-huh. for you. I don't know. I just found that hard to believe. You don't watch the television show You, do you? No, is there a cooking on that? Uh, well, in the second season, the love interest is like a cook and mm-hmm. they spend a lot of time on what she's making yeah. and showing her like go to the butcher and stuff like that. And I can't tell if it's like good or if it's like writers who subsist on the sort of things that I do. Yeah. Like <laughs> Googling something and finding out how people actually make food. That's funny. Because the relationship is like they're trying to make it into a metaphor. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it gets there. Well, that's interesting you said make it into a metaphor because I, 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 I'm interested in how like water for chocolate was appealing to you because it was food as a metaphor uh-huh. as opposed to like a movie about a chef or about, you know, I mean, 
I, I find I find that interesting. That well, because it's a metaphor for caretaking. Because right, um, you know you're putting your emotions into something, uh-huh. and then it's consumed by people that you ostensibly care about, and mm-hmm. they feel the things that you feel, which is I think part of caretaking. It's not just about the other person's needs. It's about sort of being seen and being felt to be helpful and mm-hmm. necessary. One other thing I wanted to ask you about was the idea of being a critic. I know you're not a critic, but um, you write critically about um, movies. Uh-huh. And I wonder, how do you bring that into your life when you're being cooked for? I mean, do you, do you, do you still um, think critically when you're eating food? I mean, and when you approach other things in life, do you still wear your critic's hat or are you able to take it off? Oh, uh, yeah, take it off. I mean, I think I think thoughtfully about things but unless like i'm being served food that is like not my preferred genre of food lettuce leaf um, with that vegetables certainly that yeah um i don't think that i think very critically at all Uh, like i said like it's kind of an honor to me to be cooked to have somebody cook for me right i it just continually um surprises me that somebody would do that because i feel like it is an expression of attention and love. That's really nice. Because uh, I was thinking just in terms of like your boyfriend, we're going to say your boyfriend again, <laughs> cooking for you. I mean, like there's always that moment where you're somebody cooks for somebody else and you're like, oh, this is a little gloppy. This is a little oversalted, but you just kind of eat it. No, I don't think I think that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm fortunate that he makes really good food. Right. He's harder on it than I am. Maybe it's also part of my naivete as to like what went into it or what might not right. be. Right. I think that's right? key is that it's like you're able to be critical of movies and stuff because obviously that's your milieu. Is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, whereas like food feels like something you're you're very vulnerable around. Well, I think that even extends into alcohol because I've always sort of long maintained that I didn't want to become a wine person mm. because I didn't want to feel snobby about what I could or couldn't drink if I was at a house party. Right. I wanted the ability to quaff whatever uh-huh. and enjoy it and not feel like eh, <laughs> that's like me. me in pillows i used to sleep with two pillows and then and then i went to like a sleepover when i was a kid so like, this is a long time ago uh-huh. and i only had one pillow i was like ah this is so uncomfortable but then i trained myself to only sleep on one pillow and then throughout my whole life i've only slept on one pillow and only recently i'm like i think i'm ready to like integrate two pillows back again yeah no i need i need multiple pillows at this point i think there are ways that i very obviously do sort of splurge on myself now and I'm happy to do that. I'm right. looking for more ways to do that. Like, you know, I'm going to buy furniture, which is real splurge because that shit is expensive. Um, and I want to be able to get there to some extent with food. What about beyond, going to a nice restaurant? Yeah. Yeah. Which I do do, but I, I think I need to shake myself out of my comfort zone there too, because I tend to go to like the same three over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I always enjoy talking to you because I feel like you'll open my mind. Ryan O'Connell's good for this too. Oh yeah, about like loving and knowing about new uh, restaurants. I really love that. I dated a guy oh, how long ago? Maybe two years ago now. Who was great about that? We would go to a new restaurant. Mm-hmm. That he didn't know about or that he'd never been to, but that he wanted to go to every week. Mm-hmm. It, it totally opened my eyes to so many new places. Well, it is, it is interesting because you're such a voracious viewer of film, like new movies, new movies, new movies, what's new. And so I think people who are interested in restaurants feel the same way yeah. about restaurants. But, you know, I'm not a voracious film watcher in the same way you are. And so I guess everyone has their... Yeah. I think you consume a lot of entertainment. I know, but like I still haven't seen a bunch of the. I haven't seen Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. I haven't. I was going to say, when are the Oscars this year? 
Um, well, I don't know when this is coming out. This will come out February 9th. Oh, they which are. Which is a week from Sunday. Oh my gosh. So they're yeah. very soon. Very soon. Okay. I think this is going to come out after that. Okay. <laughs> but just we'll see how you did. But what do you think is going to win? Um, <laughs> the look on his face, like, please. Just, well, we see, just there's, there's no upside here because uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, so something will have already won. So they can right, judge yeah, my yeah, expertise. Well, they, they, can read, they can read your phone. Well, um, sure. every podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but uh-huh. it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? Oh, good question. Um, I have nighttime-ish plans, which are my friend David Davis, who's a wonderful singer and great person. Uh, is performing at the Sayers Club tonight, and we're going to have like a little sort of pre-party situation around 7.30 or 8. And I think because of the pre-party, I don't know, there will probably be like snacks. There. Oh my God, I could, yeah, that would kill me. I would have to know specifically what food I'd be eating yeah. for a night out. I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I think I would probably just sort of like snack up to that moment, assuming that you know, I'm bringing something and other people might be, um, if it, if it were, if I were just going to the, the show and not the pre-party, what would I eat for dinner? Um, you know, unless I, unless I seamless, unless I go get sushi after the gym or unless I'm going to a restaurant with people, I just usually snack through it. So what are some, are they the same snacks that you have for lunch? Not quite, but like not far afield from them. What are some of the other snacks? Like you might salami, have to go to two hours today. <laughs> a salami, um, uh, apple, peanut butter. I mean, apple and peanut butter is usually what I eat when I get up. Okay. Um, if I'm better about it, I'll make eggs and bacon. Mm-hmm. But Wait, that, see, that's something. But, that's, but it, I truly weigh it against a time commitment. How, well, like, how do you make your eggs? Scrambled. That doesn't take any time. It, it takes more time than no time, which is how long it takes to like literally scoop peanut butter and eat an apple. <laughs> um, you know, a step that could save you time is you can crack the eggs directly into the skillet. Do you ever do that? You're scrambling eggs. No, uh-uh. I saw the chef on TV, Rick Bayless, do that, uh-huh. and I, that's how I. That saves me a minute in the morning. The funny, of, the funny thing is when I do do it, yeah. like I find it very zen to scramble oh my the gosh. eggs well, in, okay. the, in the bowl yeah. in a way that like, you know, I don't paint very often, but when I do what I appreciate about it or painting or Photoshop or using that sort of artistic part of my brain, it, it's a very zen experience in a way that's different than, um, uh, than my writing mm-hmm. because there's sort of a tangible result to it and you can just sort of wait and chill and get there um and you're also feeding yourself i mean how does it feel to eat warm food that you've made for yourself i mean does it feel good no different no you different. can't you can't bully me <laughs> into thinking taste... that it's better really i mean like it would the honestly the absolute best feeling is if i'm minding my own business and the door rings and suddenly <laughs> someone is presenting me with a whole meal that's great you know you've like, had your door I'd rather that. what were the things that i remember on instagram or twitter you posted for different movies, people bring you food related to the movies, like the favorite. Didn't they bring you a cake or something? Oh, yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> I mean, you get sent all sorts of things in my line of work, like promotional materials yeah. or books or whatever. Um, but I feel like every year there is some um, movie that tries to sort of get, I don't know, some sort of social media boost probably by sending food. And often they're cakes or pies. So, um yeah, when it was the favorite, they brought a pie and it was a guy in like a white wig who brought it <laughs> and also was like 
directed that he can't look at the person he's delivering it to. Like, um, like you know, they couldn't look at Olivia Coleman's queen, which is a very bizarre experience. He didn't look at you? To have this, like, shy twink in a white wig, like, <laughs> get, holding a cake on my porch. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, he didn't make eye contact with me the entire time. Nor talk. He just had it. Um uh the jennifer lawrence movie mother yes they had a cake that was in the form of a heart i remember not the valentine heart (laughs) the the organ in your body did you eat it oh i brought it to poker that night and how was it all all you know 30 of us gay men feasted on the (laughs) the heart of america's sweetheart jennifer lawrence we should say that you host a poker night every week uh well kyle we've reached the end but do you feel thoroughly (laughs) i'm glad we got to a point where i talked about eating jennifer lawrence's heart (laughs) you got somewhere great but do you feel thoroughly thoroughly lunch therapized i do i feel like i made all sorts of connections that i'd never really made great i have treated food so unconsciously oh that's fantastic well let's let's bring our dogs into your backyard and let them play together all right thanks kyle thanks